Life is filled with challenges. Does God care? How can we carry on? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and my very special guest on the show this time is Bruce Strom, who's just published a new book with InterVarsity Press in the States on perseverance, a subject that is dear to my heart. And it's called Persevering Power, Encouragement for When You're Oppressed by Life. And none of us is ever oppressed by life, are we? No, not at all. Uh, Bruce is the founder and CEO of Administered Justice, a national legal aid ministry where he invites attorneys, pastors and God's people to do practical justice in their community through church-based gospel justice centres. He's a pastor, speaker and the author of Gospel Justice. And prior to Administered Justice, he was the senior partner of a successful multi-office law practice in the Chicago suburbs. And he's got a fascinating story. Bruce, so glad to have you join us on the show. Well, thank you, Brent. It is great to be with you. Oh, look, it's fabulous. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Now I'm fascinated by Administered Justice. Tell us about that. So Administered Justice is a not-for-profit in the States, as you mentioned. And you would think that the United States of America did a better job with um, legal aid for the poor but we don't. We're far behind uh, all developed nations. We actually rank 115th in the world out of 140 countries for providing affordable access to justice, because in America, you have to pay for everything. And so that's a problem when you don't have resources. And one in three Americans simply can't afford the high cost of lawyers in America. And when that involves your livelihood, it involves um, your shelter, it involves your family, uh, social security, our retired citizens, you know, it those are significant. And not being able to access a lawyer can mean the difference between being housed or unhoused or uh, stability, uh, security. And so we just don't do that very well in the United States. So I started to administer justice to really stand in the gap and to invite God's people to stand in that gap to help our vulnerable neighbors. Yes, I was thinking to myself, did New Zealand um, do this? And I think, yes, we do to a degree, certainly with something uh, locally that we have called CLAW, which is a community law, a free community law service, which I have used in the past. And I think there was a similar thing in the UK where you can um, you can access a, a, for free uh, a lawyer and certain lawyers in the local communities go down to the, the office hub and make themselves available for certain times of the day. But I just loved your idea. How does Administer Justice connect lawyers with the local church, though, and with their communities? It's the church involvement in this that I found so fascinating. Yes, I believe that the church is central to God's heart for the world um, and that he established it. And it is part of that God's big story. And so I invite the church to continue to be that. You know, the church historically has been the center of a community. It's where we found fellowship. Again, in America, we have sometimes sidelined the church or the church gets pushed out. But I wanted to invite them back front and center because the church is the one that started education in the world, really it set up universities, taught people who couldn't read so they could read the Bible. We're the ones that led in healthcare, the church, again, universal, again, out of Europe, right, that we're... Uh, started hospitals and started uh, Clinton leper colonies in these different places for plagues. But we've been terribly absent in justice for the poor and vulnerable, especially in America. So I thought the church could invite lawyers, lawyers within the church, lawyers within the community to be able to come one Saturday morning um, to the church to be able to sit down and sit beside neighbors, hear their stories and give them great plans to help them move forward in health, coach them in how to work through the legal system in America. 
Yes, as a, a church worker, I would have loved to have had access to something like that in New Zealand. My goodness me, we we, we needed it so often. It's, it's so true. Um, you write, I think, that the church stands at a crossroads in, in the States and probably by extension in the Western world. What, what did you mean by that? The church stands at a crossroads. You know, there's a, another new book here, I'll plug it, called The Great De-Churching. Yes. Because uh, in yes. America, that's what's yep. happening. So we have 40 million people have become de-churched right there. That means that they went from attending once or twice a month, which is kind of the trend, to once or twice a year. I mean, it's a significant shift. And for the first time in Gallup's 80-year history of America polling, because America has been known fairly well as a Christian nation, less than 50% church membership first time in 80 years. So the church is at a crossroads. They are losing people, especially a younger generation, who honestly care about justice and care about doing things in the public square, living their faith out in the marketplace. Uh, And I think there's a great opportunity for the church to reclaim God's big story, honestly, and say, hey, justice and mercy and compassion are a part of that big story, and the church can do that. And the church can invite not only attorneys, because also what I love about our model is we have a team of nine people. One of those is a lawyer, eight are non-lawyers. There's lots of roles for people to play in doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. What's the purpose of justice? I'm, I'm now I'm asking a lawyer the question, but what's the pur- what is the purpose of justice? Well, that would depend. If you're asking, you know, the lawyer will talk about all these rules. And even in Jesus' day, they got that wrong. The answer to that question, I think, wrong, because they had 613 rules in the Mishnah, but that people argued about and they fought over. And today we fight over and argue over these laws. But justice is fundamentally the heart of God. Justice is part of his character, how he conducts himself. It's the very foundation of his court justice and righteousness. And in God's kingdom, that's restorative. That's seeking shalom and human flourishing. It's seeking to put all things right that we broke and put wrong. And injustice comes as a result of sin. And so perfect, true justice comes through righteousness, a relationship with God, right living with neighbor and treating one another fairly and with dignity. Uh, And that's what God desires. He desires to see that kind of shalom and human flourishing. Coming into the book, uh, I was fascinated to read it. You've been through turmoil, extreme turmoil in, in your life and, and career, and you write about this very vividly and very honestly. You, you were a senior partner in, a, in, in this massive law practice. And I think if I remember rightly, you describe how you ended up curled up almost in a ball. In, it was in your closet one day, and you write, um, I was exhausted and without hope. I had no joy. Now, Bruce, what led you to that? What led you to the, that position, uh, having been a, an extremely successful lawyer? It was it was the recognition that you think you can control. Control is an illusion. And I believe that because I had a lot of power, I had a lot of money, but I couldn't control whether my wife and I had children or not. So what put me in that closet was years of trying, going through tests, uh, surgeries, different things. And not being able to have children, something you take for granted. Some people take for granted. I know there are many listeners who have gone through that pain. I know they've gone through even greater pain, I think, through miscarriage or loss of a child. Uh, but it is a terrible, crushing roller coaster ride. And that's what put me in that closet of despair. I just, I thought God owed me for being a good person. And of course, He, he doesn't, and that's not what He wants. But my heart was so confused and I felt so entitled. But nothing was changing those circumstances, and those circumstances put me in that closet. 
Next question, I suppose, how did you get out of the closet in, in, in that sense? Where did you find perseverance? How did you find joy? Well, my wife pulled me out of that closet, and I, I hope your listeners, if they have a, a marriage, too many marriages are broken in our world today. I have a wonderful wife, beautiful wife, and she it was her prayers that pulled me out of that closet. It was her prayers that she saw the pain of infertility differently. She cried out to God, but like Hannah, she really wept, you know, the story of Samuel and the mother of Samuel. And she prayed that God would get a hold of my heart and that he would grant the desire of our heart. Her prayers were answered, Brent, and I tell that story in the in the book. Um, and that's how joy began to be restored, because just when we wanted to give up, that's when God showed up. And so often in life, I think that's a good lesson. You need to give up for God to show up. And we were going to quit uh, at the end of 1998, uh, even trying or doing anything. And that's when in October, we were at a doctor's office and we saw in a little fetal monitor the two little peanuts, because that's what they are at that age, with beating hearts, and we knew we were having twins. Leaving the office that day, we saw a double rainbow in the sky, which is such a great blessing of God and the promises of God. Nine months later, we're out with friends celebrating, because the boys were going to be born C-section, and there in the sky, the entire restaurant empties outside, including kitchen staff. There in the sky is a bright double rainbow, and just seeing that help me realize how real God is. We sometimes pray for signs, don't expect to actually see them. But when God shows up in some way through a person or through, in my case, rainbows, uh, it was so personal that that began to cut through my pride and my focus on me and began to help shift my focus to other people. That isn't the only way God has moved it seems almost miraculously in your in your life, is it? You, you write about a number of things. How has God helped you and your family out of seemingly impossible circumstances at times? Well, that's prayer. I mean, that's been the prayer of my wife. Um, it's uh, so you're right. Right after I, so my, my sons are born, and God begins to show me, open my heart to the needs of other people that are in pain, different kind of pain when you encounter the law than what I was encountering, but still that kind of suffering and. I, I immediately hit these all kinds of conflict in my law practice. It, it was just everything was falling apart. Uh, and it was God's way to get my attention. He wanted me to start administer justice that we talked about earlier full time. Well, and you think here, even for your listeners, sometimes you think you're obedient to God and you're moving forward. And you think, well, then everything's going to be rainbows. And it's not. Mm. The next storm hits. And that's what happened almost immediately. I'm now making no money at administer justice. I was making big money in a far, law firm, no money. There's only $2,000 in the bank account of administer justice, and it only gets worse. You think that's bad. You think, oh, God's going to provide because a big tax bill. We have lots of, we complain about taxes in America. We had this big tax bill from winding down the law practice. It wasn't because of money. It was because of the way they book different assets and things. And it was more than I was going to make that whole year. And wow. I did not know what to do, Brent. That put me into a great panic. But my wife, again, called me to prayer, and we spent a day praying together, felt great peace. And the next day in the mail, you hear these kinds of stories. I thought, well, this just happens to other people. This doesn't really happen. The next day in the mail, two checks come for exactly what we needed Mm. with seven cents to spare. And Mm. that's what God does, and it really is incredible. 
Yes, I've personally had that experience happen to me, I think, at least once, and many, many other people also. Um, yes, God God does provide. He really does. Often not in the ways we think, and often yeah. not when we think we need it, but he does He does in his own time and in his own way. Now, you've got um, the four keys that you found helpful. Can we work through one, one or two of these? You write it's important to look up, look back, look in and look around, I think. Why is it important to look up? And why is it important to to let go of control in our lives? Well, that's where we get messed up. So honestly, Brent, I encourage people to just go outside and look up, right? Especially on a starry night in some places. And if you just see the vastness of the cosmos, and I don't know how you can't believe that there's a God, a creator behind all of that, but you see that vastness. But now, honestly, even as you're listening to my voice, look down. Well, see, when you look up, you can't see you and you see that vastness of God. You look down, mostly all you see is you, and you have a very limited perspective. And so looking up involves perspective and purpose. Perspective is that perspective of God. His ways are bigger. His ways are higher than ours. Um, They're more perfect, what you just said. Uh, But we lose that perspective because we get our eyes fixed on us. And we all do it, and we, we all have to guard against it. But it's so important to know that God is bigger than your challenges. Right now, you're facing circumstances. God is bigger, and he sees it, and he's in control. And starting there, and then remembering your purpose, that he loves you. He created you for purpose. Your purpose isn't in what you do. I used to think it was because I could produce big money through law. No, my purpose was as a son of God to uh, recognize that and then trust what you just said, that he will supply all my needs. Your story, my story, he does provide. We just need to trust him and know that he's a good dad who loves us as his adopted son or daughter in his kingdom. And that purpose, that shift of purpose and that shift of mindset is the first place we have to start. And it's really important. How can we each find our purpose? And how do we know, even know what our purpose is? I'm thinking in terms of vocation. Yeah, I think, well, the first and foremost thing is making sure that we identify that our purpose is not rooted in what we do, right? Because if you think that it's in a specific career, then if something happens in that career, like we were just talking before we came on, there are some careers that shift totally. You know, people that used to cut a film or something that doesn't exist anymore. Well, if that's your purpose, now suddenly you're purposeless. You have no purpose. Uh, I think purpose is first found in understanding that you are a child of God, that he loves you, then it is certainly looking at how he's passioned you, how he's gifted you. And then you certainly do want to examine God's word, bring good friends around you who can speak into that and seek to live out that passion. But your purpose at its core is as a son or daughter of God. And so if these things change, if a marriage changes, um, you know, that can happen sometimes. You, you lose a spouse or you, you lose a child. You don't lose your purpose. It, it will shift. And over time, it does shift in different ways. But living for God, seeking first his kingdom and knowing that everything else will be added unto you is your true purpose. Can we come and look at the second um, key point in your book, which I, if I remember rightly, is looking back. Uh, mm-hmm. And I found I found this section particularly helpful because I think I'm guilty of this. I concluded as I read. Why why is it important not to get stuck in the past? Oh, the past is, I think, a great work of the enemy. It'll drag us backward so often. There, well, there's two things that happen from our past. Sometimes we make more of it than what it was. I love the old stories of people that walked 10 miles to school uphill both directions, right? We will 
we will make our past bigger and ourselves bigger in it, in the telling of it. That's not helpful. But for most of us, I think it's the opposite. I think most of us have suffered wounds or scars or, you know, we didn't have a healthy relationship with parents or something traumatic may have happened. And it can just play over and over in our mind. We can believe that we're not good enough. You know, a lot of times our identity is formed and we've heard somebody tell us that at a young age and we continue to believe that I can't be good enough. How can God love me? Because look what I've done. Look at how much I've messed up. Uh, and the devil will keep whispering that into our ears and we can just believe that. But that that's tragic because God has great purposes for you. And if you allow the enemy to prevent you from for getting stuck and keeping you stuck in your past, instead of recognizing that God makes all things new, that you are a new creation in him, beautiful in his eyes, and he has great purposes for you. That's what we need to remind ourselves. And I'm so grateful that his mercies are new every morning because I need them every day. I need to be reminded of that so that I can let go of the past and live in the present. Yeah. How can we each learn from our past? Well, our past certainly should be a teacher, not a master right? We are students, not slaves. And so uh, as we look back, I think it's helpful to look at milestones. So I talk about praise in this section too. I love how Israel, the, the priest, and even their very garments, they had these things called stones of remembrance built yes. on the shoulders, mm. right? So that they would just remember how God had brought Israel out of oppression in Egypt and the, the, the 12 tribes and the importance of being rooted in God. They set up these memorial stones, right? When they would go into boundaries and things. Remember when they entered the promised land, they put up this big memorial stone. Uh, uh, Samuel called it an Ebenezer, right? This kind of, again, this kind of stone of remembrance. We need those in those our lives. Jesus set up a stone of remembrance called communion, right? In remembrance of me. Just that critical importance to remember God's faithfulness so that we don't dwell on those bad things, the negative things that are real. We don't ignore them. But we do need to focus on those good things, the times when God was present and he was faithful, to remind us that if he was faithful in our past, even though we don't see it in our present or know how it's going to happen in our future, he will make a way. Yes, memory is very important in the, in the Jewish world and in the Christian one too, of course. Your third point, looking in. Now, this was fascinating as well. How can we each learn to look in? And what do you mean by looking in? Well, I do mean first and foremost rooting out pride, and I talk about pride, and I talk about peace, because what we want to do is find peace. Pride will prevent that. Pride creates this anxiety because, again, we want to control a future that's uncertain or unknowable, and we want to try to control it. That's what creates anxiety. That's what fuels oftentimes a lot of anger, a lot of division, uh, and it's our pride that will destroy that inner peace that we need. Oftentimes, too, we get so used to just hearing our own voice or wanting our own way that we don't take time to be still. I talk about the importance of stillness, of Sabbath rest, of regular other rhythms of rest. I think of trying to be still and know that I am God, that he is exalted above the heavens. He's going to make a way. But our voice just and the voices that we hear inside our head from the noise of the world and the clamor of the world and boy, you don't want to watch too much news or you just become overwhelmed instantly on all of the tragedies right now as we're talking that are taking place across the, the world. That can be so overwhelming. Instead of listening to God's voice, 
um, in the Psalms when he says he laughs. That's literally what the Psalms say. He laughs at the problems of this world because he's got his king that he's sitting on his throne, King Jesus, and he's got control of it all. He's still in control of things, even when we think everything's spinning out of control. So it's finding that peace, that stillness, that calmness, listening to his voice, um, then being able to move forward. Mm. Has God spoken to you in silence? He has many times. I had to learn, you know, Brent, I tell the story in the book. I hope everybody has a mentor. So I had a mentor. He was in his 80s when I met him um, uh, a decade ago. His name was John Robb. And he really understood silent prayers. He lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So, and I live in Chicago, Illinois. These states are far apart from one another. And we would get on a phone and, and pray. Well, I've done that before, but he suggested spending half an hour in silence on the phone. I have never called anybody to talk on the phone to be silent for half an hour. And first time he suggested it, John is 86 years young. Uh, you know, I'm a little younger and I'm like, okay, half an hour, I can do this. We're in silence. I look at my watch. Two minutes go by and I'm frantic. I'm going nuts. I'm like, how am I going to make 30? This is a, this is impossible. And my mind's racing and going through all these things. Then my next thought, Brent, just five minutes in or so is John's falling asleep. My mentor's falling asleep. And how in the world do I gently and kindly wake him up? Because I have great respect for him. And I spent the rest of my time worried and trying to figure out good plans on how to do that. And at 30 minutes, John wakes, John doesn't wake up. He wasn't asleep. He was awake to the spirit in a way I've never seen. And he describes these images or pictures that, that he received. All I got was a lot of anxiety. Uh, and, and he would share that. But he taught me how to be still and begin to hear the voice of God, to seek those. Sometimes that was an image. Sometimes that's a, a word. Sometimes it's just a nudging. And there have been many times in my life that God has just nudged or provided a word, uh, and it's so it provides such peace. When you know it's from God, that's what you do. You feel such peace suddenly in in having direction and being able to move forward. For sure, you write also about uh, understanding the importance of understanding the Imago Dei in people, the image of God. Now that that was um, interesting to me as well. Why is it important to understand the image of God and people, or, the, or that people are the image of God, in effect. Well, from the big story, again, of God, right from the very beginning, God created us in his image, uh, and it's tragic what we have done to break that. So pride, which is part of that, is is we elevate ourselves, we puff ourselves up, and so somehow, because I'm a white, middle-aged lawyer in America, that's kind of the picture of power and privilege, uh, that that somehow makes me better than a, a minority or an ethnic, uh, uh, some other thing, right? We will create these classes and we'll, or we'll create divisions between somebody's heterosexual, homosexual, Muslim, Jew, Christian. I don't care what kind of label. We create all kinds of labels to make to other people, to push them away and to now somehow justify if it's not an actual war that we see around the world, it's a it, it is a, not the civil war, but it's a civility war that we have with people. And we, we create all of these barriers, whereas God says, no, there's only one label, and that's child of God, child of mine, precious in my sight, literally made in my image. And if we saw that image in other people, we would see them more as brothers, sisters, fathers, um, daughters, uh, mothers, not as whatever, whatever label you want to put that you 
that you use as a as a way to push people away instead of God desires that love for neighbor that you would draw them closer by seeing the Imago Dei in them. Mm. Okay, uh, the fourth the fourth point in your book, which was look around. Uh, why is it important for us not to try and go it alone? Wow, again, I love this. I love your God story because it's in the very beginning, right? Adam, you would think, hey, we're created. We're with God. Everything must be perfect. But there was something lacking in Adam before the fall. And it was that it was not good for man to be alone. That applies not just to marriage. It's clear that God is a relational God, a triune God in relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as a relational God, and he created us in his image, we are relational people. And it is dangerous to cut ourselves off from relationships, the church or friends or networks. Uh, and when we do that, that isolation just fuels anxiety. It fuels all of these things we've already talked about and will will tear you down instead of having good, healthy relationships that can help build you up. So it's so important to look around and have people join you in serving others and in living outside of yourself. Is it important, are you right about the, it's important not to get into holy bubbles, uh, which I, I, yeah. I think is, is a great way of describing it. What What is a holy bubble and why is it important for us or for the church not to get into a holy bubble? Yeah, we get into these little echo chambers, right? These little... Uh, holy bubbles, as, you, as I do say, that our limited perspective. The kingdom of God is a diverse tapestry, so is the body of Christ, uh, is, is meant to reflect the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is every tribe, every tongue, every language, and it's a diverse, it's a wonderfully diverse group of people. God created us that way. I mean, it's not that by accident these different things arose. That's part of his beautiful tapestry. And it is so important that we don't get into such a narrow view. And the church can do that, too. And in America, the church is terribly accused. It's, it's, it's not fair, but they're terribly accused of aligning with one political party and only being a certain way. Uh, and for some, that is true. And that's just our politics are not the politics of a country. Our politics should be the politics of the kingdom and God's big story, and how do we advance that? But we have to get out of our holy huddles. We have to be willing to really look at the the invitation of the Bible to welcome the stranger, to be, to love our neighbor. Even our enemies were called to love and expand that uh, that view and expand our work and interaction with other people. Final question, Bruce, I think. Okay, uh, all that being so, uh, how do we persevere? What's the key? Is there a key to persevering power? Well, I think it is important to understand justice, this restorative work of God in us and an invitation by him to pursue justice with and for others. So I do say that one of the key things, even in this grid, is recognizing that the grid, if you looked at it, has a heart in the center. Mm -hmm. And I believe justice, even a better understanding of a good understanding of justice in the English word is if you look at the, the heart of justice to me is the cross of Jesus. If you look at the center of the word, it has a T in it. And that's a, that's, that's a cross. And I believe that if we can see that, that God cares about this, then that will help root us correctly. In the book, I give even a good assessment. I think that you have to live in balance with all four of these areas, looking up, looking back, looking in, looking around. And when we get out of balance, uh, skewed, different things that I talk about in the book can happen. We can become pietistic 
you know, those guys in the 17th century who really wanted to separate from the world and uh, just couldn't even live by these rigid rules. We can become paroxic, paroxysm, which is kind of a violent reaction, you know, just up and down all the time because of our wave of emotions because of all that's going on. We can be paternalistic uh, if we lean a certain way, which means, you know, we think we're doing good, but we really think we're better than others and we're doing unintentional harm. Or we can be pessimistic which is kind of its opposite, which can think too lowly of ourselves and not see God and see others. And so the, the final chapter of the book talks about how to live in balance with, with these four things and not get out of balance uh, and to just root ourselves in even daily routines that would help us know that this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it um, and put on a, uh, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair and Remember to take time throughout the day to just breathe, to look up uh, and to seek God and then seek the fellowship of others and trust him more fully. Die to self, live for him. And that that's a process and it takes time. And so mm. we should all be patient with one another as well and extend a lot of grace to one another. Ah, uh, yes, grace. Yep. We all need it, don't we? And uh we need to show it to others. Absolutely. Bruce Strom, thank you so much. And the book from IVP is called Persevering Power, Encouragement for When You're Oppressed by Life. Very helpful it is. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Bruce, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>